Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be considering the end of the world and education's role within it with Dr Nicholas Stock and Dr Nick Payne. So join us as we explore what we mean by the end of the world, what will survive and what happens afterwards. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show, my last show before the start of the new academic year. In the past fortnight, I've spent a few days advising upper sixth students on how to negotiate the UCAS clearing system following the publication of A-level results. A few days analysing GCSE results while waiting for AQA to grant me access to its new mystical centre services online system and a few days thinking about what people might mean in 2022 by the phrase, it's not the end of the world. We certainly heard that phrase uttered more than a few times by media commentators on both results days as the move to bring 2022's public examination grade awards back into line with 2019's grade awards brought a fall in the percentage of A-star and A-grades awarded at A-level compared with the last two years. Russell Group Universities seemed to be more flexible towards students who narrowly missed their offer conditions this year than in previous years, with a high proportion reaching their first choice destinations. Also notable was the return to about one third of national entrants failing to meet the grade four pass standard in GCSE English Language and Maths, which means that there will be plenty of sixth form students up and down the country who would doubtless have passed in either of the two previous years returning to these subjects as they enter year 12 in September. FFT Education Data Lab have reported that an initial analysis of national reference test data for English and Maths suggests that there has been a slight dip in performance in maths at GCSE level this year as compared with 2020, with a decrease in awards at grade seven and above, grade five and above, and grade four and above. In English, the data suggests there is no clear evidence that the pandemic has led to a decline in candidate performance, with the national reference test data having remained relatively stable at all reportable grade thresholds since 2017. Describing these results as not, quote, completely disastrous, end quote, and, quote, given the context of what this cohort of year 11s have been through, it does feel like things could have been much worse, end quote. Professor John Jerim of UCL's Institution of Education goes on to propose that the data endorses the glide path approach that Ofqual, quote, are taking to get grades back to normal pre-pandemic levels. 
the evidence from the national reference tests suggests that actually young people's English and math skills are not hugely out of kilter with pre-pandemic levels, end quote. Professor Jerem largely puts these results down to the hard work and ingenuity of teachers and students during the lockdown period and the subsequent months of recovery study. So far as key stage four reading, writing and arithmetic go in 2022, the national reference test data would suggest the decision to go ahead with public examinations this summer wasn't the end of the world. FFT are, however, awaiting further data before the relationship between regional absence rates and performance can be fully interrogated. Elsewhere, as the Conservative leadership race continues to rumble on, with the Foreign Secretary appearing to have unilaterally redefined the UK's relationship with the French head of state, Monsieur Macron has suggested that France and the wider world needs to face up to, quote, what could seem like the end of abundance, end quote, with extreme weather events, rising prices and pressure on energy supplies triggered by the war in Ukraine, likely to require further sacrifices from citizens. In Germany, the regional administrations have already embarked upon a programme of energy rationing as emergency planners anticipate reductions in gas supplies prior to the winter. The city of Hamburg has recently taken the decision to turn off all hot water in public buildings, sports centres, swimming pools and gyms. Room temperatures are to be limited to 20 degrees Celsius and outdoor lighting of various public monuments is also being switched off. These moves follow July's agreement by all European Union member states to voluntarily reduce their gas consumption by 15% from the beginning of this month, with this reduction becoming mandatory in the event of further falls in supplies, triggering what is known as a union alert. A post-workout cold shower in Hamburg in August might not be the end of the world, but a freezing December, January and February quarter in the largest non-capital city in the European Union with no heating gas is likely to be very uncomfortable indeed. In recent weeks, a new book by US historian John Jeffries Martin of Duke University has been gaining some attention in the UK. Offering a thorough and detailed study of what he calls the apocalyptic braid that stretches through human history from antiquity to the modern day, Martin's A Beautiful Ending, The Apocalyptic Imagination and the Making of the Modern World tracks the development of apocalyptic ideas in Christianity, Judaism and Islam across the centuries, arguing that, during the Renaissance in particular, a widely held belief in the imminence of the apocalypse went hand in hand with the scientific, economic and social advances that we now recognise as establishing the parameters of modernity. Introducing his thesis, Martin writes, with its visions of the future, the apocalyptic constituted a powerful set of ideas that enabled men and women often under difficult social and economic circumstances, to confront an uncertain, even 
frightening future, with the confidence that their own actions would help ensure a beautiful ending. From the late 15th through the early 17th century, the apocalyptic imagination played a central, animating role in many more significant transformations of the period. In dreaming of a beautiful ending, men and women found the energies that undergird many facets of an emerging modernity, a modernity I have called providential. Traditionally, when scholars have looked back on such phenomena as the global expansion of empire and the beginnings of European colonialism, the forging of new forms of political community that draw on utopian and republican ideals to counter the intensification of hierarchies in this age and the explosion of new forms of knowledge, especially the growth of science, have tended to view such developments as the result of economic and political forces on the one hand and on the other of new intellectual currents that emphasise reason and rationality over faith and religious ideals. Martin then goes on to say, faith in divine providence did not, as we perhaps all too often assume, lead to passivity. Rather, in focusing the attention of Christians, Jews and Muslims on a sacred narrative, it inspired new forms of agency as men and women sought to realise the prophecies of their scriptures and their traditions. Modernity was, in the end, a providential project. Is it just possible that even the prophesied end of the world might not be the end of the world then, if we take Martin's view? For could there be anything more beautiful than Isaiah's God fulfilling his promise, quote, to create new heavens and a new earth, end quote, or St. John's revelation that, quote, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away, end quote. Or the Quranic assertion that, quote, faces that day shall be blessed, contented in their endeavouring, in a lofty garden, wherein they hear no idle talk. Therein lies a flowing spring. Therein are raised couches, goblets placed, cushions arrayed, and carpets spread." End quote. Tonight, we are going to explore the end of the world and the role education has played and continues to play in shaping our understanding of the material world around us. How intertwined are the systems of Western education and Western economics? How has education contributed to our sense of ourselves as beneficiaries of abundance in Macron's terms? And are prevailing narratives of education as a wholly redemptive force likely to help or hinder us in the event that the apocalypse falls on our watch? Joining me to consider these ideas and others in the first half of the show are Dr. Nicholas Stock and Dr. Nick Payne, co-authors of the article Education at the End of the World, How Can Education Be Viewed as a Hyper-Object, which appeared in the journal Educational Philosophy and Theory in February 2021. Nicholas Stock holds a PhD in Philosophy of Education from the University of Birmingham and lectures in English Literature in a sixth form college. 
He is interested in ironic approaches to education, particularly those that embrace literature, post-structuralism and psychoanalysis. He has recently contributed a chapter to Pop Culture and Curriculum, published by Dio Books. And I'm delighted to say that Nicholas joins us now. Nicholas, can you call in now, please, if you're there? Good evening, Nicholas. Thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Christopher. Joining us on the other line is Nick Payne, a retired senior lecturer in the College of Social Science at the University of Birmingham. Nick has written extensively about English teaching, cultural and curriculum politics, education as governance, research theory and philosophy, and the history of schooling as a human technology. Nick's main intellectual interests are in continental philosophy, especially ontology, history and social theory. Recent publications include Rethinking the Politics of Education, published by Routledge in 2021. Good evening, Nick. Can you hear me? Yes, Christopher, I can hear you. Fantastic. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Nick and Nicholas are currently co-authoring a book that conducts a psychoanalytic perspective of the teacher's enjoyment of teaching. Well, it's great to have you both with us tonight. I wonder if we might start off by defining what you might mean by the end of the world for our listeners and perhaps offering an outline of the thesis that education is somehow implicated in this sense of ending. Nicholas Stock, are you happy to give us your perspective on this question of definitions? Um, I, I am. I, I'll probably pass over to Nick first, to be fair, because I, I think we, uh, we we thought we might start with kind of a little bit of an outline of um, what Heidegger had to say about this kind of topic, which I think will lead in quite nicely to understanding, uh, you know, kind of our concept of the end of the world. So I'll, I'll bounce it over to Nick first because he's, uh, he's, 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 he's better at explaining this, this stuff than Nick, to be fair. Um, so, Nick, I don't know if you wanted to talk about uh, in framing and technology as a kind of way well, to kickstart things. Yes, I'll, I'll talk about that. In, in, but, but first of all, I want uh, to address the world question. So I think, uh, you know, the world is, uh, as I understand it, uh, a, 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 a very significant feature, of course, of uh, living in two dimensions. So we have, first of all, and, and in both of these dimensions, I think, uh, our understanding of the world um, as a uh, as a kind of a historically gathered um, conceptual uh, position has been problematizing. So first of all, there's the idea of the world as other, as the world as separate from human interests, as, as an entity which has its own kind of um, its own ecology. Uh, that has been radically uh, put into question um, in the phase of history that, that we refer to, you know, borrowing terminology as the Anthropocene. So the Anthropocene is that, that phase of history whereby the human presence uh, actually determines uh, the shape, uh, the form, uh, and in a quite fundamental way, the nature of, of the world as uh, a kind of 
a, a material entity. So, you know, key kind of aspects of that would be um, the kind of ecological uh, catastrophes that occur in very various parts of the world that, that change how the, the ecosystem works, but also uh, things like nuclear waste that, that simply can't be um, gotten rid of. And the, the general kind of sense that the human presence is uh, in some very uh, far-reaching way transforming uh, the substance, the, the material being of the world at large. The, the, the second dimension of the world, I think, is, is perhaps more problematic, uh, maybe slightly more interesting uh, to consider, which is the idea uh, of the world as we experience it existentially, if you pardon the expression, the world as my world. Uh, we, you know, we familiarly talk and rightly uh, as though we're not in possession of the whole world, but, but we occupy a portion of the world. When we start to ask ourselves what portion of the world we do occupy um, and the way in which we occupy it, then I think, you know, something radical has happened to that. Uh, the, the postmodernists uh, used to describe, and, and the theorists of uh, digital technologies and their kind of socially transformative effects sometimes referred to that as deterritorialization. So, in a sense, um, the, you know, my world is is anywhere in the world. Um, nowhere in the world is radically different from anywhere else in the world. Although, in, in some ways, obviously that. that is the case. But also the, the fact that we live now in a, a network society where we, we kind of exchange with each other in ways which are uh, historically novel. Um, and, I, and I think the, the meaning of that transformation, the transformation that, that's you know probably uh, best described by Manuel uh, Castells, is very hard to, to kind of pin down, but it but it does something to the way uh, that we understand ourselves and the way that we interact with others. So, so this... you know, we're no longer kind of um, uh, sort of physically, uh, geographically, uh, kind of determined in in the core of our being, and, and perhaps the best way of, of understanding this would be to you know, to look at our mobile phones and, and, and look at the, the extent to which they shape our, our, our kind of sense of who we are, where we are, what we're doing, our connectedness. Um, you know, we, we no longer have that kind of um, perhaps mythological idea of, of um, you know, the village as being a, a local network of support. We belong in some other kind of um, space. Or we belong in multiple spaces, perhaps simultaneously. Yes, quite, quite. Or, or in some ways, we, we don't quite belong in in any of them, but we uh, frequently kind of flip between them, and we have to uh, kind of re re-identify ourselves um, in in those uh, kind of many spaces. And so, when we move on to the idea of 
the end of the world or the world coming to an end, what precisely might we mean here in a philosophical sense? Well, I think this is um, this, this, this is something that we sort of both took up from uh, from the thinker Timothy Morton, um, who's who's drawing primarily on these uh, these kind of Heideggerian ideas of of the, the way that we're being in this world that Nick's talking about, and I, I think you know we're talking about this 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 world with a capital W that that, that Nick's trying to outline there, um, and and, and that our, our manner of being in it is is defined by a sort of technological way of being a way of living and and, and what heidegger means by that is, is, is not just technological in the sense of how we think of it now like you know living through our mobile phone or, or living through the internet or through a video game or anything um, but he, he draws on the kind of ancient greek idea of what technology means which is that it's uh, it's a means to an end you know it's, it's a way of achieving something and this is kind of the way that we started for, for, for some time now, since the kind of dawn of modernity, um, the way that we've existed and, and are being within this world. And of course, that that can lead to a certain way of seeing the world, a way of inframing it, Heidegger would say, that, that turns everything into kind of a resource that's there to be expended. Um, so some people use the example of, you know, you look at you look at a field and you see a golf course, you look at a forest and you see fuel. Um, you know, you, you you look at uh, an empty space and you see, you know, what, what what could I turn this into? What could I make it into? So these are some of the things that kind of trigger um, the, 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 the way that the end of the world can be uh, you know, kind of initiated. But this is kind of um, sped up by a couple of couple of major events in history, um, particularly we're, we're thinking the the invention of the steam engine and the uh the kind of the use of nuclear arsenals in the second world war um so so nick do you want to start off on the steam engine perhaps and think about that well i'd I'd switch from the steam engine to the the massive uh uh, engine uh, of modernity and and i would always say the most important technological invention uh, of modernity which is education Mm -hmm. and it didn't really come to uh you know, proper uh, fruition until about 1870. But from, from that point onwards, certainly in the, if we start looking at the UK context, uh, then, you know, we, we can also kind of make reference to uh, what we sometimes refer to as the, the West or you know, the, the Western world. I should, should um, point out that 1870 is a significant date for me and Nick because it's... Uh, the Forster Act, when education for all is first uh, passed out throughout England, that you know, everybody is expected to go to school for at least some some time. So that's why that's and a from, significant date. Yeah, and from from then onwards, um, there there is a, a kind of requirement for, for universal education, um, and that's compulsory. So. Um, it's at that point we can say, uh, when I say point, I, I don't mean that in a literal sense, but in that movement um, towards an educated uh, a school society, um, we have a massive kind of transformation of the relations between government and population. And in fact, I always say, uh, only, only partly to, to try to be outrageous, uh, that government is actually what's going on in schools and and it's much more significant than anything that's happening in Westminster or similar kinds of locations because it's through the educational apparatus that um, populations are are 
very, very effectively and in very far-reaching ways being governed. And the technology that, that gets invented during this process has to be kind of carefully thought about. There's a, there's a kind of key figure in this whose name is James K. Shuttleworth, an in, interesting uh, character. But he kind of put together, as it were, uh, what became the essential model for the school. And, and this you know, highly kind of rationalized social space uh, came uh, to, to be a kind of uh, education. I, I refer to it as an educational archipelago. So wherever, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you'll, you'll never be very far away uh, from a school. Um, and one of my favorite kind of ways of imaging this is finding myself on a research project in the Llem Peninsula in North West Wales, uh, where there was a school that was pretty much on the edge of a cliff. But this symbolized for me the idea that education had become this massive uh, social technology that wasn't just kind of offering learning, but was actually shaping the mode of being for the people. And, of course, um, there is no escaping this uh, massive machinery. So this social technology um, is, is very much uh, central to, to what uh, modernity is. But it continues, I think, to intensify and to uh, modify itself in ways that, that become more and more invasive. And now I would say we have the, the school system is is kind of strongly aligned to and in, in uh, a kind of uh, complementary sense operates in the same way as the university system. Sorry, someone was going to speak there. Yeah, sorry. So I was just going to say that so there's a sense then that viewing education itself as a kind of technological development is quite yes. um, an interesting way actually of thinking about the connections between politics, economics, and what happens in our classrooms. Uh, Nicholas Stock, there's an idea, isn't there, running throughout the British educational tradition of education reform as being essentially a positive, redemptive idea, that we're somehow going to make something that is good constantly better. Are you able to say a little bit about that for us? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is as you say, it's a, it's a very kind of pervasive idea throughout kind of all educational thinking really, no, no matter which kind of way you want to interpret education, it's the same kind of idea that can be found. Um, you know, you, you could take it all the way back to kind of Plato's ideal education of, um, you know, the, the famous myth of the cave with people sitting in darkness, watching shadows on a wall and they're, they're dragged out of it and shown the light outside. And so there's always this kind of idea at root that the education's taking us from, from darkness to light or from uh, from ignorance to enlightenment or from kind of, you know, uh, 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 not, not knowing something to knowing something. And so that's kind of a, a, a structural concept that undergirds a lot of education and, and enforces it. But, you know, one of the things that Nick was just saying about kind of education is this totalizing object, this kind of massive, great thing that we're, we're constantly kind of enclosed by means that all different aspects of education are kind of becoming uh, infected with this idea. Um, you know, I mean, a, a, a simple one would just be to think about pedagogy, for example, that pedagogy is, is always based around the idea of if I use X method, you know, a student will go from not knowing something to knowing something better. 
or they will you know come to learn something more quickly or or come to come to be better at something and 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 it, it sort of contains that same idea that if i can improve the methods then then i can speed them up into knowing the thing they need to know um and assessments of course kind of um rooted in this same idea that if you can pass the assessment, you're moving into a, a stage of, of knowledge and of, of wisdom and of, of enlightenment, this moving from darkness to light, and, and therefore are moving towards kind of betterment. But really, the, the, the idea is that with education, things can only get better. And, you know, you sort of see this in a, a very kind of quotidian sense that every time there's either a major or a minor catastrophe, normally one of the first things that you see people on, you know, on the radio or, or on the telly when the, the paper's saying is, oh, we need, to, we need to educate people about it better. You know, oh, well, you know, there's, 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 there's a, a growing issue with, with knife crime in, you know, some part of London. Uh, oh, well, okay, well, then it needs to be uh, addressed with education or, um, you know, the, the example that we're talking about at the moment, there is a, you know, a, a climate crisis that we are very much within, you know, not that's coming that we're in the middle of. Well, in that case, we need to educate people better about it. And it's, it's, it's often the answer that's given with the implication being that it's, it's through education that these things are all going to be changed, improved and, and, and solved, really. That kind of well, I, think, um, society. I think that that kind of uh, way of thinking is so, so deeply embedded in our culture that it's, it's very hard uh, to get to think otherwise. But I think you know, that, that business of the idea that education is in some way uh, both spiritual, you know, you, you become a, a kind of better kind of being by being exposed to education in, in some almost ineffable way, but, but also it's, uh, it's very functional so that um, you know, universities now are dominated by the idea of impact. There's, a, there's no point kind of doing the work that you do in a university for its own sake or or simply you know to um, address some issue in an abstract sense you have to demonstrate uh, that that your work uh, is making some palpable uh, impact on society but, but it has to be an impact which is geared towards um, improvement making the world in michael jackson's famous phrase a better place <laughs> um i think that 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 thought has has come almost completely to dominate uh, what counts as knowledge and research in the modern university and if you don't fulfill that then you're not going to last very long in that kind in that one of those institutions so a, a real sense then that we've we've got something to work with here, and particularly this idea of you know, the, the trap we largely all fall into, I think, as classroom teachers, the sense that we're going to be able to make that improvement through our teaching and be able to evidence that improvement by some kind of measurable outcome, I think, largely determines the decisions we make about what we do yes. in our classrooms on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, because it, it, also, it, it also kind of opens up and, and, and supports the discipline debate as well, that, you know, obviously there's always a, a back and forth about what's kind of like an acceptable level of discipline in a school. And should it be that we're, you know, punishing students for not bringing in a pencil or should we just leave it be? But, but actually both sides of that argument are ultimately because, you know, both believe that it's a way of upholding this, this move towards, uh, you know, kind of betterment that, 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 
or, or all parts of the spectrum uh, ultimately kind of lead towards that same uh, same outcome. So we've got these two different visions then, the kind of disciplinarian vision, the more liberal vision, I suppose we might parody it as traditional versus progressive in some way, and that they both seem to be aiming at the same object, this yes. desire to evidence improvement and to, I suppose, legitimise their approach through that evidence of improvement, Nick? I, I think the distinction between um, the, the progressive and the, um, the disciplinarian is is a really quite a false one because the, the, the progressive model is predicated always on the idea uh, that he or she who is being educated will ultimately discipline themselves. Isn't that the, the kind of model of the ideal pupil? I think so, yeah. It's not necessarily the one who will uh, accept uh, uh, unthinkingly a, a kind of disciplinary regime, but who will internalise uh, the disciplinary mechanisms that will enable them then to enjoy the, um, the, the fruits of education. And I think you know, that, that kind of idea that somehow being successful or not successful within education is to do with the property of the self is is a is a very far-reaching one and it goes back to what nick was nicholas sorry was saying about um you know what what basil bernstein called a pedagogized society we understand ourselves very very significantly whether we're in education or outside of education in educational terms, who we are, uh, the way that we speak, um, our right to comment on you know, any kind of uh, given topic. I mean, there's even sort of examples of this in a, an obvious way as well of, you know, obviously, you know, kind of taking your grades, every job that you have to go to, and, you know, kind of thinking about you know, what school did you go to, what university did you go to, but but also that kind of pedagogization exists in, in every workplace now that everybody has to kind of undergo yes. constant training, constant... Continuous uh, professional development. You must that's yes, continue, that's exactly to, it. continue yeah. to develop. Great phrase, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which is exactly the thing that kind of Deleuze warned us about as uh, moving into a control society where, you know, people are easily controlled and disciplined through their own kind of pursuit of, of continuous professional development that, you know, that they are they are dedicated to, to getting the next certificate and to constantly improving their skills. And that happens through a learning process and that can happen in the workplace. It can happen in the school. And, and, and I, you know, one of my recent kind of observations is that it even happens in the home now that, you know, through digital technology in particular, um, we're kind of constantly pedagogizing ourselves, you know, putting a podcast on in the gym or, um, you know, kind of using Duolingo when you're sitting on the sofa or we're constantly kind of putting ourselves through this, this pedagogized mode. So it's very easy to see how it becomes this kind of very pervasive way of being. Um, and and no, no matter what kind of part of the world, capital W, you, you are in. Yeah, it's almost like education follows you around wherever you go, mm -hmm. which is a point I'd quite like us to take up after the news. So we're just going to cut to the news now, and then um, we'll be back to explore the idea of what we think a model of post disaster post-apocalyptic education might look like, the way Western education systems might adapt or evolve 
as they deal with some of the pressures that were mentioned at the beginning of the programme. So don't go away, we'll be right back. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection, which is best? In the past, the wired connection was considered the fastest and this would be the end of the episode. However, modern wireless speeds are comparable with a wired connection. So what factors affect performance? The first factor to consider is can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an ethernet or compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit your data and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver in human language, your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is if possible use a wired connection at home though this is easier said than done you need to be reasonably close to your home hub as this is where the ports are and sometimes that's not a great place to work if you are after a wired connection away from your hub then take a look at using power line adapters these are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket they are relatively cheap and some can also be used as wireless extenders allowing you to create a better wi-fi coverage in dark spots in your home at around 30 to 50 pounds it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home meshing is the next solution to improve coverage more recently homes have been adopting the mesh system meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range all have the same sign in so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection starting at around 80 pounds it's a more expensive option but if you only have devices that use wi-fi this might be the answer for you with most home networks after bandwidth availability interference is your next enemy always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow otherwise consider power line adapters or meshing most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them this will guarantee it works for your network but be aware this will come at a higher price tag if this has given you food for thought i'd love to hear from you why not get in touch at tt radio 2022 follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech i'm steve woods and that was two minute tech Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need offered a clear path to career progression and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this 
is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is Teachers Talk Radio News GCSE special. With many young people celebrating their GCSE results on Thursday the 25th of August, a range of both local and national media outlets have carried stories of success. Schools Week have provided a clear analysis of some of the trends as pupils received grades via examinations for the first time since 2019. The main headline figures have dropped from those achieved in 2021 when pupils' grades were awarded based on teacher assessment, but many were up when compared to 2019 figures. The main headlines for pupils in England include the Grade 5 or above pass rate at 60.3%, which is up from 53.5% in 2019, with Grade 4s improving from 69.9% to 75.3%. The number of pupils achieving top Grade 9s sits at 6.8%, but is much higher than the 4.7% in 2019. In terms of subjects, English has seen a bigger drop in top grades than maths, on 2021 levels, although both subjects still outperform 2019 grades. There were also nearly three times more straight nines since the last exams, with 2,193 students achieving all grade nines compared to just 837 in 2019. Over two thirds of these students were girls, sparking some additional reporting on the gender gap in terms of attainment. 13 students in England achieved Grade 9s in 12 or more GCSEs. One of the biggest stories, however, has been the attainment gap between North and South. In the northeast of England, the proportion of pupils achieving top grades of 7s or above was 22.4%, compared to 32.6% in London. Whilst in the West Midlands, a fifth of students achieved top grades compared with one third of London students, according to the website Birmingham World. This data has prompted a number of stories focusing on school funding and what some view as the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on some areas. The Director of Schools North East, Chris Saraga, called for an urgent recovery plan which recognised the different needs of different areas, whilst also highlighting the work done by the region's students and teachers in what he called unprecedented circumstances. Meanwhile, Ofqual Chief Joe Saxton, speaking to the TES magazine, has commented on the attempt to return to normal assessment. In the article, she notes that the advanced information issued by exam boards to help students sitting this summer's exams may not have been helpful in practice. Speaking to school leaders at the Confederation of School Trusts conference, she stated that it gave pupils just one other thing to think about. Dr Saxton also explored how she expects aspects such as grading scales to evolve in the future. The core points of the speech included addressing disadvantage, described as a key part of her job, with examples of maths and MFL questions being accessible to all. She also described the summer 2022 exam grading as one of the most generous in history, as Ofqual did not want to return to 2019 grading levels in one fell swoop. Dr Saxton acknowledged that exams would be changing over the coming years, highlighting that she believes it is a case of when, not if, we move towards online assessment but added that reform must not throw out babies with bathwater and that handwriting is here to stay. And finally, exam board AQA continues to face industrial action from employees who were part of the union Unison. The strikes are currently in their fourth period of industrial action as a dispute over pay and threats of fire and rehire continue, according to union representatives. 
The action coincides with many of those who marked exams for the board this year taking to social media to complain of delayed and missing payments and some claims of pupils not receiving marks at all. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio GCSE News Special with Joe Fox. Welcome back to our show on education at the end of the world with Dr. Nicholas Stock and Dr. Nick Payne. In the opening section of the show, we considered what we might mean by the end of the world in a philosophical sense and the idea that humanity presently occupies an increasingly fragile place on the planet. So let's reflect now upon how Western models of education, learning and curriculum might adapt to the aftermath of a catastrophic climate adjustment. In this scenario, alternating extremes of heat waves and sub-zero cold snaps have made much of the United Kingdom virtually uninhabitable, apart from a reasonably temperate zone broadly corresponding with present-day Yorkshire and Lancashire. How would the education system respond to the loss of London as the epicentre and testing ground of experimental policy development? What would the purpose of an education system be in such circumstances? Would the education system be tasked with rebuilding society or would a new society demand a new education system? So who'd like first crack at this one? Nick, would you like to have a go at this one? Nick Payne, can you hear me? Okay, I'm struggling to hear you both. Is it possible that you could um, disconnect and reconnect and we'll get you back in again? Hello, Nicholas, are you back with us? Hello, Nicholas, I can't hear you. Are you able to um, have another try? Let's just see if we can get through one more go. Hello, Nicholas, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. Brilliant. And are you still there? Not sure what's we'll happened. Not sure what's happened to Nick. Oh, we'll try and get Nick back. So if I if I just ask Nick to reconnect in a second, we should probably be back um, shortly. So Nicholas, this massive catastrophe has occurred in the UK. Yorkshire and Lancashire are just about inhabitable, but have been cut off from London. How's the education system likely to manage that in England? Well, I suppose there's there's an irony because of course your your uh, you know your kind of thought experiments is is um, positioning an, an education after after an apocalypse and of course you know what Nick and I are, are claiming is that we're already um, living in a an educational curriculum that's that's after the apocalypse and kind of the, what what 
sort of seems clear in terms of how education tends to function in these situations is in a kind of continued um, way of just making people kind of just keep going and uh, just to sort of surviving in the present rather than any kind of um, kind of radical change for the future that it's almost as if it kind of allows us to keep going in stasis really um, you know I mean I suppose if, if a, a good example would be looking at how people are, are, are taught to kind of become these uh, post-Fordist workers now when they leave school and by post-Fordist I mean kind of no longer on the production line but kind of fluid multiple skills um, you know, kind of able to to dip around from various kind of office job to office job, or as as David Graeber called them, you know, bullshit jobs, um, and and it it kind of says that there is you know there is an eco catastrophe that is happening right now all around us, and you know both both capital and empire are you know speeding up this catastrophe, and yet generally speaking, we're kind of educated to just sort of you know keep going and you know go to work and things will you know probably probably work out okay because you know you've got your education and so if if, if that's kind of a, a rule of thumb so far then a, uh, a, a, a an apocalyptic world as you're describing it means that people would probably probably still go to school and you know read a bit of Shakespeare and, and do some maths and, and learn some history and that kind of thing as well so that's that's my kind of ironic answer <laughs> I don't know if Nick has got a, a more serious one well, yes. I mean, I, I, mad, I wonder whether they'll be reading Shakespeare, you know, differently through different perspectives and so on. But yeah, Perhaps so. I, I, I think it'd be a good time for eco-criticism Shakespeare to uh, to make it. Yes, better. indeed. And I think, uh, you know, we, we still talk in terms of climate change when habitually we should be referring to a, a kind of ecological catastrophe. That's right. That's yeah. all, already kind of happened, you know, and has been happening for you know, a couple of hundred years. Um, and has been accelerating, um, you know, since 1945, uh, you know, for, for various reasons. But I, th I, I think the, the question implies that we can continue with the kind of rational mode of, of being that says, if this is a, a projected future, then how do we make it livable? How do we make it tolerable? How do we um, manage to salvage something of the kind of enlightenment legacy that we've been uh, not just brought up to, to think with, but that's, that's actually shaped who, what, who and what we are and how we see um, the nature of existence. And I think it's very difficult to think other than that. Um, and I think in a sense, it, it makes it difficult then uh, to make proposals uh, and again, that that's a kind of a resistance. I want to propose a resistance to the urge to make proposals, uh, partly because proposals have got us into a whole lot of trouble already. And that uh, <laughs> you know the the, rash, the rational mode of being, you know what what uh, Max Weber over a hundred years ago referred to as instrumental rationality you know, has become, again, to borrow a phrase from Graeber, an iron cage uh, from which it's it, it's very difficult for us to, to step outside. Mm. I think, you know, a serious kind of rethinking of who and what we are um, would have to kind of precede any programme, as it were, of 
um, of salvation. Again, we're not into this kind of language of salvation, aren't we? Um, I think we are. I mean, if, I, I think we've possibly even seen the first glimpses of this, haven't we, with the COVID working from home or learning from home mm, and the emphasis yeah. on iPads and computers in every space. And also yeah. this sense that we've been going through a recovery curriculum, which is essentially a euphemism for post-catastrophe education, is it not? Yeah, I mean, the, yes. the, the, the learning learning loss narrative in particular has really kind of upheld this idea that um, there is there, there is a sense of the curriculum, that the little bits of it that, that may or may not have been missed. And of course, this is often kind of, um, you know, got, got some some problematic uh, racialized and, and class based kind of biases attached to it as well. But there, there is a sense of because a little portion of this curriculum was missed that, you know, things can't go on. You know, we must must catch up and, and things must be restored back to where they were. Uh, you know, you, you see it in, in, in the grades, um, kind of the grade discourse as well. But, you know, grades are returning back to normal as if there is a kind of fixed uh, grade that, that has to be kind of returned to. And, yes, and there was there was a point. I mean, normal is uh, in that sense used in a, in a very positive sense, isn't it? But I don't know if you remember those moments early on in lockdown when people were kind of uh, becoming very uh, almost kind of sentimentally, um, I don't know, uh, positive about the fact that, you know, the fish had returned to the, the Venetian canals. and mm. um, that, that, you know, once everything stops, then things actually start to improve of themselves. But but not in that kind of uh, educational way, not not in in that kind of uh, developmental progressive way, and that that model is as you as you that's a fantastic example you give there I think Nicholas um, of the persistence of that notion and how we can't really give up on the idea that education you know it might not do kids any harm to miss a year or two. Um, because we're, we're addicted uh, to the idea that uh, this progressive curriculum that we have is staged as it's staged for highly rational uh, reasons uh, that the kind of whole of the social machinery depends upon. Certainly. And if we were to lose London entirely, Nick, mm. what yeah. effect would we have in terms of education policy development then? Education policy development. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, in a sense, part of the problem, isn't it? That once you have a, a centre, a rationalising kind of uh, centre, um, then you, you, you're thinking in terms of restoring something that has been lost. And I think, you know, what was lost in this case would be what part of what had um, initiated the um, ecological catastrophe in the first place. I wonder too if it I would make it, us... Again, you know, it's, it's hard to think. Uh... Sorry, I was just going to say, I wondered if it would make, yeah, it us, would make us closer to those um, fellow sufferers across the globe who would also be dealing with the consequences of this ecological catastrophe would it make more sense for us to 
view education more internationally in that context? Well, I think we already do view education very internationally. And, yeah, it's um, ar arguably already, a, you know, a heavily globalized force in that sense. Yeah. Um, that, you know, mass education as, as a, you know, a, a force for betterment is something that's kind of embraced with gusto really all over the world. And, and, and if it's not, it's often imposed on places as well. Um, you know, that uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a kind of a colonial narrative to it as well that goes alongside, you know, places that are, that are, are deemed in, by, by various imperial forces as, as in some way inferior are, are given education as a way of kind of, um, you know, supposedly making them reach, reach betterment and enlightenment as well. And so that kind of globalised aspect of education probably already is there, as Nick's saying. I think uh, yeah, if we think of that historically, it's it's interesting also. If we think of the fate of you know, Aboriginal Australians, for example, or you know, my favourite contemporary example is the, the tragic case of the Piraha in Brazilian rainforest in southern Brazil, Macy River, whose world, and you know, the, the, going back to that world, has been forever uh, transformed. Uh, by the, the presence now of education. And they, those people will no longer, who were radically different from any other people and who were of immense interest to, to many anthropologists uh, because their whole way of thinking and being in the world was radically different from our own. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Their that... way of life um, you know, is, has gone now because the Brazilian government has beneficently it feels, uh, given them the, the, the gift of um, education. Yeah, it's quite an interesting contrast with, say, the people of North Sentinel Island that the Indian government has deliberately tried to protect from that yes. exposure to learning yeah. in our sense of the word. Yeah. And there, there, are, there are very few examples now of people uh, who have... Uh, a sustainable traditional way of life uh, that that doesn't have you know, some some formal um, educational component to it, because the drive to education has been remorseless and and, and relentless. Maybe one of the, the good consequences of a, a I say this laughing because uh, it sounds absurd to say it that you can have a good consequence of a an impending. Um, ecological, you know, further catastrophe um, would be that uh, you know, the schools have to close down and people have to live together in a different kind of um, modality. It's 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 a, a, a kind of daft uh, fantasy, uh, but I've always kind of felt odd about the the way our world is. You know, very strongly predicated on age stratification. So we keep the young people away from the. I used to work in the School of Education at the University of Birmingham, uh, and we never ever saw a child in that building. I was mm. there for twenty years, and it would have been it would have been an, an offence against uh, <laughs> some unwritten principle if, if that had occurred. Well, that's, that's a fantastic place to wrap up this discussion before we move on to the next bit after our. Second news break in which I'm hoping the technology will survive 
for the time being so we can all be reunited sure. with um, Julie Gibson from the End of the World Reading Club, who's going to join us to discuss whether there are any models of a potential post-catastrophe education system in post-apocalyptic fiction of the last two centuries. So oh, yeah. we'll cut to the news and then we'll be straight back. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection, which is best? In the past, the wired connection was considered the fastest and this would be the end of the episode. However, modern wireless speeds are comparable with a wired connection. So what factors affect performance? The first factor to consider is can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an ethernet or compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit your data and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver, in human language, your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is if possible use a wired connection at home though this is easier said than done you need to be reasonably close to your home hub as this is where the ports are and sometimes that's not a great place to work if you are after a wired connection away from your hub then take a look at using power line adapters these are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket they are relatively cheap and some can also be used as wireless extenders allowing you to create a better wi-fi coverage in dark spots in your home at around 30 to 50 pounds, it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home. Meshing is the next solution to improve coverage. More recently, homes have been adopting the mesh system. Meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range. All have the same sign-in so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection. Starting at around £80, it's a more expensive option, but if you only have devices that use Wi-Fi, this might be the answer for you. With most home networks, after bandwidth availability, interference is your next enemy. Always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow, otherwise consider power line adapters or meshing. Most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them. This will guarantee it works for your network, but be aware this will come at a higher price tag. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit 
www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is Teachers Talk Radio News GCSE special. With many young people celebrating their GCSE results on Thursday the 25th of August, a range of both local and national media outlets have carried stories of success. Schools Week have provided a clear analysis of some of the trends as pupils received grades via examinations for the first time since 2019. The main headline figures have dropped from those achieved in 2021 when pupils' grades were awarded based on teacher assessment, but many were up when compared to 2019 figures. The main headlines for pupils in England include the Grade 5 or above pass rate at 60.3%, which is up from 53.5% in 2019, with Grade 4s improving from 69.9% to 75.3%. The number of pupils achieving top Grade 9s sits at 6.8%, but is much higher than the 4.7% in 2019. In terms of subjects, English has seen a bigger drop in top grades than maths, on 2021 levels, although both subjects still outperform 2019 grades. There were also nearly three times more straight nines since the last exams, with 2,193 students achieving all grade nines compared to just 837 in 2019. Over two-thirds of these students were girls, sparking some additional reporting on the gender gap in terms of attainment. 13 students in England achieved grade nines in 12 or more GCSEs. One of the biggest stories, however, has been the attainment gap between North and South. In the northeast of England, the proportion of pupils achieving top grades of sevens or above was 22.4% compared to 32.6% in London. Whilst in the West Midlands, a fifth of students achieved top grades compared with one third of London students, according to the website Birmingham World. This data has prompted a number of stories focusing on school funding and what some view as the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on some areas. The Director of Schools North East, Chris Saraga, called for an urgent recovery plan which recognised the different needs of different areas, whilst also highlighting the work done by the region's students and teachers in what he called unprecedented circumstances. Meanwhile, Ofqual Chief Joe Saxton, speaking to the TES magazine, has commented on the attempt to return to normal assessment. In the article, she notes that the advanced information issued by exam boards to help students sitting this summer's exams may not have been helpful in practice. Speaking to school leaders at the Confederation of School Trusts conference, she stated that it gave pupils just one other thing to think about. Dr Saxton also explored how she expects aspects such as grading scales to evolve in the future. The core points of the speech included addressing disadvantage, described as a key part of her job, with examples of maths and MFL questions being accessible to all. She also described the summer 2022 exam grading as one of the most generous in history, as Ofqual did not want to return to 2019 grading levels in one fell swoop. Dr Saxton acknowledged that exams would be changing over the coming years, highlighting that she believes it is a case of when, not if, we move towards online assessment but added that reform must not throw out babies with bathwater and that handwriting is here to stay. 
And finally, Exam Board AQA continues to face industrial action from employees who were part of the union Unison. The strikes are currently in their fourth period of industrial action as a dispute over pay and threats of fire and rehire continue, according to union representatives. The action coincides with many of those who marked exams for the board this year taking to social media to complain of delayed and missing payments and some claims of pupils not receiving marks at all. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio GCSE News Special with Joe Fox. Welcome back to our show on education at the end of the world. Joining us to discuss the relationship between education and disaster in post-apocalyptic fiction is Julie Gibson. Julie is a lifelong fan of the apocalyptic fiction genre and founder of the End of the World Reading Club a book subscription box for lovers of apocalyptic and dystopian fiction, which seeks to bring text to life while educating its subscribers in self-sufficiency and survival skills. Julie is passionate about encouraging an attitude of lifelong learning through regular challenging reading and by helping people to reclaim their sense of self-responsibility. Welcome to the show, Julie, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. Julie, are you able to? Hello. Yeah, I can hear you now. Perfect. Oh, hello. <laughs> Hi, Christopher. Thanks for Thanks joining for us tonight, Julie. Our technology is proving a bit of a burden. If we're relying on it at the end of the world, then uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to need an upgrade. Um, we've been talking so far then about how Western education systems might respond to the stresses posed by catastrophic changes to the nature of the environment or the world as we might understand it and how education might survive in such circumstances to be honest we've been struggling a bit to imagine what this future could look like in such dire circumstances does apocalyptic fiction offer us any templates for a post-catastrophe understanding of education julie um I, I think it can, but it, it's been very interesting as a layperson listening to kind of three academia insiders talk about the topic. Um, what you see in post-apocalyptic fiction is is unrecognisable in most cases um, from the education system that we have now. Um, it's, it's very rarely organised to the extent that we have now, uh, with very few um, few examples of kind of organised group education systems. I mean, one notable accepting, ex exception um, would be the Wool Trilogy by Hugh Howey, which has organised education uh, um, with primary schools and high schools. Um, but those are used very much as a tool of control. So. Um, the education you do see, particularly in very modern um, post-apocalyptic literature, is very much um, pastoral, ancestral, um, nature-based learning. That's interesting, isn't it, that we've got that split? Because, of course, Nick was mentioning earlier this sense that education seems to function as a controlling mechanism, almost mm. as a kind of technology in its own right. And we've got the kind of tension between that potential future vision and this vision of learning in nature that almost takes us back to Eden, Nicholas Stock. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of add to firstly what Julie was saying about, about those kind of education systems in, in sort of dystopian fiction she's talking about, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that 
dystopian fiction only works as as pure dystopia if we can see our own world in it um you know kind of taken to some sort of nth degree um otherwise you know i don't think it really functions as something that's truly apocalyptic because if it's not our world that's kind of met its own apocalypse then then you know it doesn't feel like an apocalypse at all so we have to be able to see some of our own world in it so so ultimately those, those two strands um, that, that Julie's mentioned, one about the kind of the controlling disciplinarian side of schooling, which we've already talked about, but also, yeah, that kind of pastoral one is also really, um, definitely really kind of pervasive and present in our, uh, in our current time. That there's, you know, this kind of, and this is very much common in lots of kind of eco discourse as well about a sort of return. Um, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, Thoreau and, and Walden, the idea of, you know, we can perhaps just return back to the woods and back to the cabin and, uh, you know, kind of re- restore ourselves that way. And um, it, it, it's, it's also very similar to, to what somebody like Rousseau was saying as well, um, who's, again, a kind of, you know, another really pivotal educational thinker that's deeply inspirational for lots of kind of uh, ways that people look at education, that it should be kind of nature that's offering up some sort of education for us and a return to this kind of pastoral, happy communities of, you know, fishermen and shepherds and village folk. Um, but this is kind of problematic for lots, lots of reasons. One um, is, is that often, you know, this kind of idea pops up in lots of quite, quite sort of fascist discourse. The idea of returning to the land is often something that's very uh, kind of common in, in, in lots of fascist thinking. But two, it's also predicated on this idea that there is actually a kind of a nature, capital N, to return to. Um, that there is that's one there is one sort of untainted by ourselves that we can go back to and if you go right back to what Nick and I were talking about at the start he was talking about the Anthropocene that you know we're we're in an era that that is fundamentally changed by man's presence um you know is is there a is is there a nature that that's actually free from uh from anthropos that that, that we can return to what do you reckon Nick I might put that one back to Julie, actually. Julie, what sense is there that human beings in these post-apocalyptic texts are in control of the environment they find themselves in? Um, I think it's, um, in a lot of uh, this fiction, it's kind of a a rebellion against what we have now. Um, And, you know, the population is so reduced that we are back to a place where we can live off the land um, there's there's um, so few of us in many of these uh, these novels that um, it is entirely possible to go back that way, um, and I, I think the almost the rejection of traditional education in this genre is a reaction against um, what um, Nick was talking about earlier. He mentioned that education is almost a kind of government, um, and it's a reaction against that. Uh, what a lot of people feel as an over-government um, and their loss of, of self-reliance, their loss of control in their lives. And um, they, I think people love this kind of story because they can see if the world was altered and we weren't, there weren't so many of us that maybe we could get some self-reliance back in our lives again. Um, and that doesn't look like our current uh, traditional education system in any way for a lot of people. Yeah, that's interesting. I certainly turn to post-apocalyptic fiction when I'm thinking about, you know, dealing with the stresses of the modern world, which is bizarre, mm. isn't it? To kind of yes, we involve often get... yourself in this catastrophe for escapism. 
yeah i often get challenged that um that uh, the end of the world reading club is surely not good for your mental health um but i always say you know we're not for everybody but that our members find it as an escapism even though that many people might feel that what we're currently living through is a bit of uh, an orwellian dystopia um these stories generally have a lot of hope in them and um a lot of courage and i think that provides some some uh, positivity and escapism for people definitely they certainly can do i mean i'm i'm thinking particularly of um cormac mccarthy's the road um I, I came back to this the other week and was reminded of a section in the book where the man and the boy are talking about crows and it essentially triggered memories of my homeschooling my daughter during uh, the two lockdowns while also trying to teach online in a place and in a no place um, my students in school and there's this whole conversation between the boy and the man as they travel along this road in this seemingly post-nuclear winter about whether there are still crows anymore and the kind of questions the boy is firing off and the kind of answers the father is giving reminded me very much of some of the conversations I was having with my six-year-old daughter then as she was trying to make sense of um, where we where we were what we were doing why we were doing what we were doing why we couldn't do what we were normally doing so for me that's a kind of educational narrative that we experience in that book i mean mccarthy supposedly wrote it as a love song to his son are there any other particular texts where we can find something positive without wishing to fall into that redemptive education trap that we mentioned earlier from the sense of catastrophe that emerges in this genre I think there's, there are quite a lot that, that have a positive kind of um, spin on on education and that particularly in that ancestral, what I, what I would refer to as ancestral education, that passing down of information. Um, um, so many, let me think of a, an example. I mean, the book of Coley, um, it's a, it's a three-parter by M.R. Carey, um, the Rampart trilogy. Um, they have lost all all education other than that passing down of practical skills. Nobody can read or write. Um, they don't have a number system as such beyond, you know, counting to 10. Um, but um, they have a very positive, um, fulfilling life uh, within, you know, the education that they have. They understand their role in their communities. Um, and as the trilogy progresses, um, they start to uncover old technologies. So, you know, the, the epitome of old of um, the old education system, the, the very high levels of, of scientific um, discoveries and technologies. Um, but they bring them back into their communities, having learnt the lessons again, which we've all forgotten, those, those lessons of community and self-reliance. So that's almost, is that about recovery or is that about regression, do you think, Julie? I think it's about bringing the two together, really. Um, that it's, it's a really fantastic read, a real roller coaster ride. They start, it starts off with the technology that is available is in the hands of a kind of a ruling elite. And um, the, 
the ordinary people rise up against that and take that education back um, and use it in a more positive way. So is there a sense that education in that text is being made to serve the needs of the community, perhaps in a way that wasn't the case before? Yes, yes, very much so. The world has been obliterated in this series by um, high science and by awful technology um, through war and genetic modification of our of our um, environment. Um, so they're, they're kind of taking the results of that um, and using their 300 years, this is 300 years post-apocalyptic, they, they're using that with their 300 years of learning, you know, what is, what is actually necessary for humans to thrive and putting the two together. It's a nice idea, isn't it, Nicholas, this sense that post-apocalyptic fiction really starts to ask particular questions for us, whether it's in the 1950s after the Second World War or whether it's contemporary fiction after the millennium about what education is for and what we ought to value mm. in terms of passing on knowledge to the next generation or indeed skills. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of um, reminded of um, Mark Fisher opens, opens his famous book, Capitalist Realism, with an analysis of, of children of men, which is, you know, a kind of a a great apocalyptic tale because you know the world the world is literally over because you know, people are no longer able to have children and so you know the, the human race is slowly but surely dying out um you know there's 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 one baby left in the um in the entire narrative and so everything's kind of focused around that but but there's, there's an interesting kind of lesson to be learned from it that what what mark fisher noticed about about the opening of this film which was like i said very much within the apocalypse is that kind of things were just going on in a very kind of humdrum way that people were still going out and getting their morning coffee and going to work and we can presume as well you know children were still going to school and and you do see this in a lot of apocalypse stories as well um that you know that, that, that even as the apocalypse goes on and that you know things are surely coming to an end people just keep on going and getting an education so really these kind of these sorts of narratives they're, they're almost a cautionary tale they're a reminder to us that we need to be seeking something, you know, radically other, radically different from, from what we have on offer, not kind of a, a few tweaks um, to, 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 how we, to how we do things that will suddenly wake people up into, you know, challenging what's around us. There needs to be something that moves past the kind of the humdrum every day that you see in something like the opening of Children of Men. So I think that's an interesting kind of cautionary tale in that sense. Yeah, is there a sense that education has become so ingrained in the business of everyday life that it becomes not particularly notable fact that it's continuing? I think that's a good way of looking at it. But, you know, I mean, the, the word business works in two senses there, right? That, you know, it's, it's the business of everyday life in terms of how we go about things. And of course, also its fundamental link to business and kind of an, an upholding of, of, of capitalism as an, another kind of force of everyday life. Um, but it's sort of so inextricably linked to it that it's very, very difficult to... Uh, to pull those two things apart now but i suppose really what we're saying is if we want to uh if, if if we really want to do something radically different from education then you've probably got to do something radically different from capitalism as well as those two things are are so tied together um but you know a, a great quote from mark fisher here who's also quoting slavoj zizek and uh frederick jameson that it's, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism as so many different kind of post-apocalyptic narratives tell us. And so I would also add to that, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of education. 
It's a nice way of putting it. Julie, is it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism? Do we see a that, kind of capitalism evolve in the text that you're that sending out to your readers? Very much not. <laughs> it's, that's really interesting um, because what you tend to find is a lot of apocalyptic fiction writers, when you look at um, you know their social media, what they're talking about, um, they are... Um, often anti-capitalists, they have um, a need to rail against the unfairness of it all and to um, to somehow change the world so that the you know the ninety five percent of us stop sleepwalking through the awful treatment of us by the the top five percent. You you so often see that with with the authors of this kind of books, they're quite angry about things, um, and I think that you you don't see the capitalist structures or the education structures in their fiction because they see it as part of the problem, but maybe don't we don't know how to fix it. How do we stop it going so horribly wrong as we're seeing at the moment with, with um, families facing £5,000 energy bills um, while companies post ridiculous profits? Um, and I, I think that is probably what drives them to kind of obliterate that. Um, whole capitalist um, culture in their writing. Yes, there's certainly a sense that it's a, a useful space for writers to make um, social comment on the times that they see before them. Very much Are there so. any... I mean, a, a great example of that is uh, Kings of a Dead World by Jamie Mollart, uh, which is dystopian, technically, not quite apocalyptic. Um, and in his his book, um, the elite, you know, top 1% have decided that everybody else has to go to sleep for half of their life. They have developed this technology where they put everyone to sleep for three months and then they wake up for three months so that they can continue with their own um, excesses uh, while um, everyone else sacrifices. And it's, I think it's a really good example of that um, railing against what we're currently seeing now. Yeah, so again, this... The sense of social criticism coming through. So it sounds, Nicholas, that if we're looking for potential new models, post-apocalyptic fiction isn't quite going to help us out. We're either going to return to the land or we're going to return to some kind of authoritarian government in every room kind of experience. How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, not great, <laughs> but, uh, but but I mean, ultimately, it, it's kind of what we what we see definitely uh, often happening in response to, um, you know, kind of such problematic events. I mean, I, I suppose an interesting case study is something like the climate strikes that, you know, were happening probably up to leading, leading up to the pandemic um, and, and things like BLM marches as well. Um, that I think importantly kind of represents and I think the climate strikes particularly speak to this because actually it was very specifically about not going to school and not getting an education anymore. Um, that there is, you know, a sense of uh, those th those people were very aware. They already know everything they need to know about, uh, about about the end of the world and instead wanted to actually stop that happening or to, you know, try and reverse it rather than to go and um, learn more about it, as it were. And, you know, obviously the, the majority of the media kind of its retaliation was always back to, well, they should be in school. You know, they, they were in school, you know, they'd be they'd be doing more for, for combating climate change than, than if they were striking. 
Um, but actually what they show us is, is you know, an attempt to do something, uh, something other and something different and something outside. Um, whether you can kind of step outside of education is, is, is a kind of a broader problem that Nick and I have been positing that even by kind of striking from going into school, does it mean you step outside of this pedagogized world that we raised? Uh, perhaps not, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's it, the outlook is gloomy, let's say. Okay. Well, that's, I think, all we've got time for tonight. So we will have to wait and see whether um, Martin's suggestion that sense of an imminent apocalypse might actually cause positive action will be proven true or not. Thank you very much indeed to Nicholas Stock and to Nick Payne and to Julie Gibson for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having us, Christopher. It's been Thank really you. good. And so we have come to the end of this month's Late Show in which we have explored some philosophical perspectives on the end of the world and considered their implications for us, thought about the role that education plays in our construction of the world that we inhabit and continue to overexploit, and considered some of the ways that education might adapt in the face of catastrophic climate change, although it seems searching for the perfect model will need to continue as we haven't yet managed to come up with all the answers. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as the end of the summer holidays at least approaches ever more rapidly. Will these final days of summer prove the prelude to an in-staff training day characterised not by removing staples from notice boards, hunting down elusive book deliveries and updating computer software, but by flowing springs, raised couches, goblets placed, cushions arrayed, and carpets spread. Whatever awaits you in the autumn term, it can't be the end of the world, can it? Thank you again to my three excellent guests this evening, Nicholas Stock, Nick Payne, and Julie Gibson for their contributions to the show. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in and listened to the show. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio programmes this week. There's now a comprehensive back catalogue of thought-provoking and entertaining shows on topics as diverse as SEND provision, teaching methodologies and outdoor education hosted by an excellent panel of teacher presenters. And you can find them all on the website www.ttradio.org. That's it from me this month. So thank you for listening. Enjoy the last few weeks of the summer holiday and we will speak again in September. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.